Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1197. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 4. This is being recorded on August 9th of the year 2021. Before plunging right back into the programming, uh, three notes, three links at the top of each program description and at the top of each food, uh, for the rec- uh, food for thought post, excuse me, one of which will enable you to subscribe to the comments made by Perifractal, our expert contributing editor, and also other intelligent listeners. Uh, another link will enable you to subscribe to the podcast that sister station WFMU is uh, creating. So if podcasting is the best way for, if podcasts, I should say, of the best way for you to consume the broadcast, click on that link and WFMU will give you the podcast of For the Record. And also a link on which to click to get uh, all of my roughly 42 years of programming and writing uh, and a mini library of old anti-fascist books on the easy-to-download PDF files. I get no money whatsoever from that. Now, we're going to uh, plunge right back into this ongoing series about the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. Uh, following up, I'm going to overlap the material in this program with what we've just heard. And again, you'll be hearing some sections of a book on which we will be relying enormously in this series. That is Sterling Seagray's uh, groundbreaking The Sung Dynasty, that's capital S-O-O-N-G, published in hardcover by Harper and Rowe, and copyright 1985 by Sterling Seagrave. Uh, I think the comprehension of China's past is essential to understand what is going on today. And uh, the misconceptions and deliberate disinformation that is being disseminated against China as part of, as part of the full court press that we are generating against China is, well, it, it's amazing to me. Uh, it is a classic example of the big lie. And I'm afraid that we are going to uh, wind up in a third World War. Uh, China is a fifth of the world's population. They are making enormous progress. Uh, they are really would be best characterized as state capitalist rather than uh, communist per se. They do have a large uh, communist party that is the dominant political element, but they are essentially a uh, capitalist country. Against state capitalism, I think is the best. Uh, term for what is essentially a hybrid system, uh, devastated by the European and American and also Japanese colonial efforts of the 18th, of the 19th and 20th century, uh, China is regaining its footing, and uh, again, it is about a fifth of the population of the Earth, and the only way that they are going to be uh, roll back is through a third world war. They're not going back to the past. And I think a third world war is on its way. In order to understand 
China's past. And to understand the fascism of Chiang Kai-shek's government, Chiang Kai-shek, the head of the, quote, nationalist, unquote, uh, Chinese government, and uh, a man whose Kuomintang was a key element of the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, uh, the Asian uh, wing of the former World Anti-Communist League, I should say, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, was basically a front for the Green Gang, and the most powerful man in China was the head of the Green Gang. That was Du Yuexing, or Big Eared Two, or Big Eared Du, as he was known, because of his enormous ears. Uh, the foundation of his criminal empire, and really economic empire, was the opium trade that quickly expanded into China's business community, which he dominated, and China's financial community, which he dominated uh, in combination with both T.V. Sung and H.H. Kung. The latter married to A.Ling Sung, and Matt uh, Chiang Kai-shek himself was married to... Uh, um, Mei Lang Sung, uh, the sister of T.V. Sung. More about that family later on in this series. But to understand China's present, I think uh, one must understand its past. Indeed, its uh, military buildup is essentially defensive in nature and really is a reaction to the superior naval power of Britain and later Japan and uh, during the Cold War, the U.S., uh, which uh, dominated China's large coastline. Uh, listeners are no doubt familiar with the term gunboat diplomacy. That was a term that was coined during the two opium wars of the 19th century when Britain used its superior naval power and later in combination with France, Russia, and to a lesser extent the U.S., it uh, basically uh, beat China down and and legalized opium. Uh, Opium was illegal in China and, uh, well, I'm going to uh, recap for purposes of continuity uh, some summation, a summation of the Opium Wars and what they did. This from the various Wikipedia entries on the Opium Wars. Now, the economic imperative for the conflicts was the trade imbalance between China and Britain. In the 18th century, the demand for Chinese luxury goods, particularly silk, porcelain, and tea, created a trade imbalance between China and Britain. European silver flowed into China through the Canton system, which confined the incoming foreign trade to the southern port city of Canton. As noted in the uh, Ami Go Home article or book review from German Foreign Policy in our last program, China was the largest economy in the world uh, in uh, correspondence to the fact that they were the largest country in the world, roughly a third of the Earth's population and a third of the Earth's GDP. That changed with the opium wars and with the following. Again, dealing with the trade imbalance between China and Britain. To cover this imbalance, the British East India Company began to grow opium in Bengal, parenthetically in India, and allowed private British merchants to sell opium to Chinese smugglers for illegal sale in China. The influx of narcotics reversed the Chinese trade surplus, drained the Chinese economy of silver, and increased the number of opium addicts inside the country, outcomes that seriously worried Chinese officials. 
and then the, the Chinese attempted to interdict that. In 1839, the Daoguang Emperor, rejecting proposals to legalize and tax opium, appointed Viceroy Lin Zhezhu, that's Z-E-X-U, to go to Canton to halt the opium trade completely. Lin wrote an open letter to Queen Victoria, which she never saw, appealing to her moral responsibility to stop the opium trade. Lin then resorted to using force in the Western merchants' enclave. He confiscated all supplies and ordered a blockade of foreign ships on the Pearl River. Lin also confiscated and destroyed a significant quantity of European opium. The British government responded to this by dispatching a military force to China, and in the ensuing conflict, the Royal Navy used its naval and gunnery power to inflict a series of decisive defeats on the Chinese Empire, a tactic later referred to as gunboat diplomacy. And I believe that the uh, current Chinese military posture, in particular its uh, essentially defensive posture uh, in the waters around its coastline, portrayed as aggression in the West, is a direct reaction to uh, its history of being overwhelmed by superior naval forces. The gunboat diplomacy, which jackhammered open China and forced opium on the country. Uh, the first opium war was concluded with the Treaty of Nanking, and China experienced, quote, in 1842 the Qing, Q-I-N-G dynasty, was forced to sign the Treaty of Nanking, the first of what the Chinese later called the unequal treaties, which granted an indemnity and extraterritoriality to British subjects in China. The the 1842 Treaty of Nanking not only opened the way for further opium trade, but ceded the territory of Hong Kong to Britain. Interrupting parenthetically, as I said, uh, the reaction of China to the destabilization efforts in Hong Kong with the U.S. uh, more or less openly networking with and financing uh, the various personages and institutions involved in the, quote, pro-democracy, unquote, movement uh, is more than a little understandable in light of what basically uh, happened with Hong Kong. It became a British colony by force when the British Navy, using gunboat diplomacy, jackhammered open uh, China. And uh, I would note that Hong Kong uh, was long a center of high-level, white-collar, organized crime. And what set off the uh, demonstrations there, the, the disorders, uh, was basically the uh, uh, extradition treaty, which would have extradited uh, any criminals, would have permitted China to extradite criminals from Hong Kong to China. A Hong Kong citizen had murdered his pregnant girlfriend in Taiwan and fled to Hong Kong because they did not have an extradition treaty, and that led to the attempts at passing the extradition treaty. That treaty would have permitted white-collar criminals to be extradited to mainland China, and Hong Kong had long been an epicenter of high-level transnational white-collar organized crime. 
And despite the fact that opium uh, was imported into China and uh, to a larger extent, and the British were compensated for the opium stocks that the Chinese had uh, destroyed uh, prior to the first opium war. Uh, once again, the trade imbalance between China and Britain worsened, and it's ironic that in part the cost of maintaining the colony of Hong Kong uh, was one of the factors that led to that. This uh, note also that the extraterritoriality that was granted to British subjects uh, exempted them from British law, and that included the official, uh, excuse me, excuse me, excluded them from Chinese law, made them uh, extraterritorial. That uh, Chinese law included at that time the official prohibition against opium trafficking. British citizens, however, could not be indicted for that. And this led to the Second Opium War, once again from Wikipedia. Despite the new ports available for trade under the Treaty of Nanking, by 1854, Britain's imports from China had reached nine times their exports to the country. At the same time, British imperial finances came under further pressure from the expense of administering the burgeoning colonies of Hong Kong and Singapore in addition to India. Only the latter's opium could balance the deficit. Along with various complaints about the treatment of British merchants in Chinese ports and the King government's refusal to accept further foreign ambassadors, the relatively minor Arrow incident provided the pretext the British needed to once more resort to military force to ensure that the opium kept flowing into China. Matters quickly escalated and led to the second opium war. By the way, the Arrow was a... uh, a ship that was at one point a pirate ship, and uh, there was an incident that led to the war. And as a result of the Second War, uh, the Second Opium War, China was obliged to cede uh, the number one district of Kowloon, south of the present-day Boundary Street in Hong Kong to Britain, enlarging the colony of Hong Kong. Uh, it obliged the Chinese to grant, quote, freedom of religion, unquote, which led to an influx of Western missionaries, U.S. in particular. And as we will see, one of the things that Western missionaries did was to treat the enormous opium addiction they encountered in uh, the Chinese population by giving them morphine, which, of course, got them hooked on morphine. That practice was so common that morphine was known in China as Jesus opium. Another thing that uh, resulted from the uh, Second Opium War, British ships were allowed to to carry indentured Chinese to the Americas. We'll talk about what came from that in a second. And last, but most assuredly not least, legalization of the opium trade. And you cannot understand Chinese history, and you cannot understand the fascist regime, and it was a doctrinaire fascist regime of Chiang Kai-shek, without understanding dope. Dope is at the foundation of not only uh, the uh, harrowing experiences that China China had at the uh, hands of Western imperial powers, uh, it also is at the foundation of the Chiang Kai-shek fascist government. That is why I call it narco-fascism. And Chiang Kai-shek, although nominally an ally, was in fact a not only a doctrinaire fascist, but collaborated extensively with Hitler, with Mussolini, and in particular 
with the invading Japanese, and it was Chang's unwillingness to fight the Japanese invaders, in the opinion of many, including his collaborator and finance minister, Ki V. Sung, about whom we'll say much more later, uh, that led to the uh, takeover of China by the Chinese communists, basically, because the uh, Chinese people turned to the Chinese communists who were willing to fight and, in fact, fought the Japanese very effectively. More about that later in the series. But again, as a result of the opium wars, opium was legalized in China, and it had a devastating effect. One of the critics of the opium wars and uh, what Britain did was uh, William Ewart Gladstone, who later became prime minister. He said, quote, or Wikipedia says of what he had to say, the opium trade incurred intense enmity from the later British prime minister, William Ewart Gladstone. As a member of Parliament, Gladstone called it, quote, most infamous and atrocious, unquote, referring to the opium trade between China and British India in particular. Gladstone was fiercely against both of the opium wars, was ardently opposed to the British trade in opium to China, and denounced British violence against Chinese. Gladstone lambasted it as, quote, Palmerston's opium war, unquote, and said that he felt, quote, in dread of the judgments of God upon England for our national iniquity towards China, unquote, in May of 1940. A famous speech made by Gladstone in Parliament against the First Opium War, a famous speech was made by Gladstone in Parliament against the First Opium War. Gladstone criticized it as, quote, a war more unjust in its origin a war more calculated in its progress to cover this country with permanent disgrace, unquote. And again, I think the uh, way that Britain used its superior naval power, in a manner similar that the Japanese uh, in the Second World War used their superior naval power, both in the Sino-Japanese War that uh, was really a, a part of World War II, although it preceded the U.S. entry into the war, it was the vulnerability of the Chinese, which uh, China has a huge coastline, to uh, the effects of superior naval power, both by Britain, later by Japan, and during the Cold War by the U.S., that I think has governed much of China's strategic policy vis-a-vis its uh, territorial waters in the contemporary period. Now, One of the outgrowths of the Second Opium War was that British ships were allowed to carry indentured Chinese to the Americans, uh, to the Americas, excuse me. Now, we're going to turn again to a book. I'm going to reintroduce three passages that we have already read in this series. We have a lot more to cover in this book and also in the book Gold Warriors, uh, co-authored by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. Recall that in, for the record, program 1195, we discussed the fact that uh, Sterling and Peggy Seagrave uh, were warned by a high CIA official that an assassination team was being put together in Taiwan to murder them for having published, uh, written this book. Sterling wrote it, Peggy Seagrave greatly assisted with the book. So the book that I'm going to be accessing 
in considerable measure in this series, uh, incurred the wrath of the Kuomintang government at that time in control of Taiwan, and they sent a hit team to the U.S. to kill Sterling Seagrave. He and Peggy uh, retreated to a sailboat that uh, Sterling built uh, from scratch, from a hull, and they lived on that boat for years and were able to elude their assassins. Finally, when uh, they went to uh, Europe and restored an old Templar wine cave to live in, uh, those assassins caught up with him, and Sterling narrowly escaped in the pent on his life and was permanently injured. But, again, the book that I'm reading from now, or will be reading from, The Sung Dynasty by Sterling Seagrave, it's a brilliant and important book, sadly out of print now, so you've got to go to the various used book services to get a hold of it. But uh, it was an act of heroism in and of itself, and Sterling Seagrave uh, was the target of Taiwanese-slash-Kuomintang assassins because of what he wrote. Now, as a result of the treaty that concluded the Second Opium War, uh, British ships were allowed to carry indentured Chinese to the Americans. This paved the way for Chinese who were well known as good workers. There's an echo, I should say, of a lot of this in what we're seeing today, the balance of payments, uh, the trade imbalance between China and the West, that is reminiscent of what happened during the uh, in the run-up to the opium wars. That is why the British East India Company began importing opium into China. And Chinese workers are very good workers. And uh, in uh, the 19th century, after the Second Opium War, uh, indentured Chinese workers were brought to the U.S. by British ships, and they uh, they they played a major role in the U.S. economy in the 19th century. When the economy turned down, both when the silver trade collapsed and when the railroads were built, this led to a deadly reaction, not only on the part of American workers, but on the part of American elites, journalistic elites in particular, who actively encouraged what was basically a racist mini-genocide, to coin the term, against the Chinese. Reading now from the Sun Dynasty, copyright 1985 by Sterling Seagrave, published in hardcover by Harper and Rowe, we read, In the Pacific Northwest, anti-Chinese rioting had aroused so much horror around Seattle that President Cleveland was obliged to take action. America's Wild West was on a rampage against Chinese. As Charlie Sung, the father, by the way, of T.V. Sung, Mei Ling Sung, A. Ling Sung, uh, and uh, other, others of T.V.'s brothers, as well as Ching Ling Sung, who became Madame Sun Yat-sen. As Charlie Sung crossed from sea to shining sea, Chinamen were getting scalped by whites on the fruited plains and on Purple Mountain's majesty. With the collapse of the silver boom, a recession had swept over the West Coast in the 1880s, and jobs were hard to find. Manufacturers turned to Chinese labor because celestials, that was a word for Chinese, made fewer demands. In retaliation, unemployed whites were whipped into a yellow peril, unquote, frenzy by unscrupulous editors and politicians. China pounds were put to the torch. 
white vigilantes staged pigtail cutting parties, unquote, in which they not only hacked off Chinamen's cues, i.e. their pigtails, but ripped off their scalps as well. Beheading, which was not characteristic of America, occurred in places as far afield as Montana. In one of the most extreme and gruesome atrocities on record, a mob severed a Chinaman's genitals and took them to a saloon where they were roasted and eaten as prairie oysters. Thousands of Chinese fled the white peril and went home to China. In consequence, the population of Celestials in the American West dropped in the late 1800s from 110,000 to barely 60,000. The bloodbath reached a climax as Charlie headed back to Shanghai. At that very time, mobs in Rock Springs, Wyoming, hacked 28 Chinese residents apart and burned others alive while the town's proper ladies stood about clapping and laughing. They were following the advice of the editor of the Montanian, who wrote, quote, We don't mind hearing of Chinamen being killed now and then, but it has becoming too thick of late. Don't kill them unless they deserve it, but when they do, why kill them lots, unquote. In America, local laws and ordinances against Chinese were becoming so universal that Congress began to set limits on Chinese immigration, the first time America had ever restricted the entrance of a particular nationality to its shores. In the beginning, the Manchus had prohibited Chinese from leaving their own country, but the foreign powers wanted cheap labor. One of the results of the Second Opium War was to force the Manchus to allow Chinese emigration. The Western powers with America in the forefront then promoted and ran the coolie trade. That was, that was a, a nickname for Chinese workers. In the Burlingame Treaty of 1868, Congress affirmed the right of free movement between China and America. But when the railroads were finished, cheap Chinese labor was a burden rather than a blessing. Congress then revised the Burlingame Treaty drastically and in 1882 passed the Chinese Exclusion Law, barring entry of all Chinese except teachers, students, merchants, and tourists. Chinese who were already in America were prevented from becoming naturalized U.S. citizens. Immigration from China plummeted from 40,000 in 1881 when Charlie Sun was at Trinity College to only 10 individuals in 1887, just after Charlie went home. Again, uh, that's from 40,000 in 1881 to just 10 in 1887. And that, again, uh, as noted here, uh, one of the results of the Second Opium War was to force the Manchus to allow Chinese immigration into Western powers. America in the forefront then promoted and ran the coolie trade because they wanted cheap Chinese labor. Now, another major outgrowth of the Opium War, and again, one should never lose sight of the fact that it was the superior 
British Navy, which permitted the use of opium as sort of uh, a narco-imperialist tool, to coin the term, and that not only devastated China, it reversed the position of the balance of trade between Britain and China. That was one of the things that Stefan Barron referred to in uh, the review of Ami Go Home that we spoke about. That was one of the things that helped to knock down China from being the, the roughly a third of the GDP of the world uh, down to being a uh, essentially a, colonial, a, a feeble uh, punching bag for the Western colonial powers. Now, uh, in 1911, and uh, I'm going to have to telescope an awful lot of Chinese history, so this will probably be, in certain respects, an inadequate treatment, but <laughs> we've only got so much time. In 1911, Sun Yat-sen finally uh, succeeded in overthrowing the hated Manchu dynasty, and uh, his Kuomintang then became something of uh, a double organization. It was torn between uh, a Moscow-oriented faction, which led to the rise of a communist Party beginning in China, in, in Shanghai rather, in 1921, the 100th anniversary of which was just uh, celebrated, and a more reactionary element of the Kuomintang uh, that ultimately became controlled by the Green Gang. It became controlled by Chiang Kai-shek. It became a doctrinaire fascist organization, and it was governed by two things. One, dope. It was the narcotics, the opium trade that was introduced into China by the British, or really the uh, forced into China by the British, forced in the legalization uh, that uh, led to the foundation for the Green Gang, which was the opium trade, and also the doctrinaire anti-communism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Green Gang, which along with the professed Christianity of both Chiang Kai-shek and Tu Yuasheng, the uh, irony of that will have been to labor, that led to the infatuation uh, with Chiang Kai-shek, the Kuomintang uh, government, uh, on the part of the U.S. and one of the central people. We'll get into this in our next program. But Henry Luce, the publishing giant who's best known for Life magazine and Time magazine, was one of the dominant influences in promoting Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek, nay Mei-Ling Sung, TV Sung's uh, sister, into the media giant and the ideological giant that he became. Now, uh, back to 1921 when the Chinese Communist Party was founded in Shanghai, and as noted here, there was a uh, snoop. Somebody was keeping an eye on this, and that will lead to discussion of Chu Yuasheng or Big Ear Chu. He was the most powerful man in China, and Chiang Kai-shek was basically a political gopher, a political front for the Green Gang at uh, the... Tu Yuasheng, at one point when Chang ran afoul of him, actually had Madame Chiang Kai-shek, nay Mei-Ling Sung, kidnapped in order to show Chiang Kai-shek, who was really boss. More about that later. Speaking of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party in Shanghai in 1921, it was a feeble and tentative beginning. Moscow regarded the Chinese communists as bumblers and political adolescents. 
but their assembly was enough to alarm the Shanghai gangsters who were watching. If the founders of the Chinese Communist Party had had any idea what was going to befall them, they were basically massacred, they would have been more alarmed by the mysterious figure watching the pink schoolhouse on Joyful Undertaking Street. The spy was not there merely for the French sûreté, although the French had, and the international conception had an enormous uh, presence in the uh, China as a result, uh, again, of the opium wars. The spy was not there merely for the French Sûreté, but for another of Pockmark Wang's organizations, the Green Gang, a new gangster syndicate that will soon be the most militant anti-communist force in China. Its leader was Chu Yuasheng. Uh, you'll also see that du, du capital D-U, last name capital U, Capital Y-U-E-H hyphen S-H-E-N-G. This last sentence again because it's critical. The spy was not there merely for the French Sûreté, but for another of Pockmark Wang's organizations, the Green Gang, a new gangster syndicate that would soon be the most militant anti-communist force in China. Its leader was Chu Yuasheng. Uh... Park Mark Wang was the leader of the Red Gang, there were the Green, Red, and Blue Gangs. Tu Yuasheng rose to the leadership of the Green Gang, and Park Mark Wang and the, Green, and the Blue Gang fell in behind him. The foundation of Tu Yuasheng's dominance of China was his control of the opium trade. He organized, in a manner not unlike the way uh, Meyer Lansky uh, reorganized organized crime in this country into something resembling a large corporation, he organized the various opium traders into a cartel, which enabled them to not only uh, regulate price and maximize profit, but to uh, more effectively regulate distribution of opium, which again was made legal in China, by the superior naval forces of Great Britain during the Opium Wars. The Second Opium War led to the legalization of opium, and it was dope that was the foundation of the Green Gang, and the Green Gang was the milieu to which Chiang Kai-shek belonged. He was a doctrinaire fascist, but he was basically a political gopher, a political front for Tu Yuasheng and the Green Gang. And uh, Sterling Seagrave goes on to write, Tu Yuasheng was that exotic creature, the pure criminal mastermind. He was born into desperate poverty in 1888 across the river from Shanghai in a ramshackle village called Kaochao in Putung District, the most squalid slum in China. His father was a coolie in the grain shop. When his parents died, the boy became dependent upon his mother's brother, who treated him brutally. By the time to reached his teens, he was a sinewy and murderous youth whose narrow shoulders, unusually long arms, and murderous youth uh, excuse me again. By the time to reached his teens, he was a sinewy and murderous youth with narrow shoulders, unusually long arms, large yellow teeth, and the eyes of a successful rat. He decided to pursue a career pushing opium across the river in Shanghai. 
At first, he stayed alive by working as a helper to a fruit vendor, selling pears on the waterfront of the French concession, and doing homicidal favors for waterfront hooligans. Two's outstanding features were a big, shaved head and ears that stood out like tree mushrooms. His face was lumpy and irregular like a sack of potatoes, the result of of severe childhood beatings. His lips were stretched taut over his protuberant teeth in a perpetual smirk, and his left eyelid drooped in a permanent wink, giving him a lascivious air. There was always fresh gravy on his gown. He fit in perfectly with the Shanghai waterfront milieu. Around him were loitering tufts and pandering riffraff, low-end members of the famous Red Gang headed up by Pockmark Wang. Two fell in with them, and before he was fifteen became a member of the gang. His closest pals were runners for the big man himself, Pockmark Wang. Two hung around the kitchen at Wang's heavily guarded house, and then eventually made the acquaintance of the great detective's well-thumped mistress. Through her, he met the boss and was recognized as a valuable recruit, a young man of quick wits. Chu handled his assignments with energy and resourcefulness. He made friends everywhere by his easy manner, his generosity, and his genuine willingness to help. There was nothing Chu would rather do than aid a downtrodden street vendor by terrorizing the pawnbroker to whom the vendor was in debt. Big Year Two was especially good at handling opium, which was Pockmark Wang's main source of revenue. One day, Tu proposed that the rival gangs join in a cartel to move the opium to market and then split the pig. This is key here because it was the opium trade that was the foundation of the Green Gang and Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang. Big Year Two was especially good at handling opium, which was Pockmark Wang's main source of revenue. One day, Tu proposed that the rival gangs join in a cartel to move the opium to market and then split the take. This would put them in control of most of the opium in China. They could then dictate the price. Profits would rise dramatically. Wang let Tu work out the details which meant negotiating with some gang leaders and assassinating others. The leader of the Green Gang resisted and was disposed of. Big Ear, too, became the new boss of the Green Gang. The head of the Blue Gang, whose name was Chang Shaolin, wisely decided to cooperate, and a troika was formed of the three gang leaders. Together, they ruled the Shanghai underworld, the two adjacent provinces of Chekiang and Kangshu, and the entire Yangtze Valley, far into the poppy-growing regions of China's interior. In the international settlement, which is an outgrowth of the opium wars, bootleg opium had always been controlled by the Chu Chow Three Harmonies Triad, headed for many years by the Cantonese Wang Sui. Big Year Two, quote, persuaded, unquote, Wang to join the cartel also. This extended Tu's leverage into the international settlement where he gradually subverted 
and took over the Three Harmonies, absorbing it into the Green Gang. Eventually, the Green Gang completely displaced all other triads within its territory, except the deeply embedded Peasant League, the Society of Elders and Brothers in the countryside. Two's worth increased fabulously, at one time conservatively estimated at over 40 million American dollars. This, by the way, was uh, roughly in the uh, 1920s. That was an incredible amount of money back then. Continuing. Never tight with funds, Two gave money freely to friends, and if strangers offered him a plausible cause, he would give money to them as well. There were many legends about how Bigger Two helped widows, rescued men who had lost everything, and supported orphans. He also had a bottomless talent for inducing fear. People have a way of doing what Two asked them to do. He never tried to take the place of his patron, Mark Wang. The Red Gang continued to exist as an exclusive social club for patriotic old revolutionaries. That, by the way, was the 1911 revolution that uh, turned out the Manchu dynasty in favor of the Kuomintang, which again was split between a right and left-wing faction. The left-wing was allied somewhat with Moscow. The right-wing faction uh, prevailed, and that was led by the Green Gang, Tu Yuesheng, with Chiang Kai-shek as a front. Continuing... The Red Gang continued to exist as an exclusive social club for patriotic old revolutionaries, while criminal operations became the province of the Green Gang from 1910 on. Pak Wang remained the head of the Troika, but Figure 2 was the director of operations and puppet master of Shanghai. When he pulled strings, the city danced to his tune. At his disposal were a large number of the urban workers from longshoremen and street coolies to postal clerks and bank tellers. The Postal Employees Guild allowed him to read people's mail. Wherever possible, two took over the indirect control of companies by using extortion and terror to bully the boards of directors into submission. Meanwhile, his men organized the employees of these same companies into guilds. It was carefully done for the most part to maintain an illusion of independence. But both the guilds and the management were powerless until Big Year 2 jerked the strings. This was why in the summer of 1921, when the 13 Marxist delegates gathered in the Pink Brick Girls School on Joyful Undertaking Street to establish the Chinese Communist Party, there was a suspicious Stranger working outside. The snoop had been sent by Pockmarked Wang and Big Ear Two to keep an eye on this odd collection of Chinese intellectuals and their rather more dangerous Russian friends. After what had happened in Russia, the presence of Bolshevik agents and organizers in China was a direct challenge to the growing dominion of the Green Gang. As one might expect, Bigger too, has some very interesting friends. Of the few that he evidently considered his equal in guile, and coming there was a woman, one with a remarkable gift for high finance and a backroom intrigue. Her name was Ailing Sung, now known to strangers 
as Madame Kung. She was the sister of uh, Chi V. Sung, about whom we'll hear more later, and the sister of Mei Ling Sung, whose marriage to Chiang Kai-shek, A. Ling Sung, uh, arranged. Mei Ling Sung became Madame Chiang Kai-shek and the darling of Henry Luce. A. Ling Sung was sort of like a Chinese Lucretia Borgia. She was brilliant. She was conspiratorial, very quiet, very cunning, and was reported to run teams of assassins. She was married to H. H. Kung, who, along with T. V. Sung, rotated as finance minister of China. Continuing with Sterling Seagrave's account. On many Sundays... After A. Ling Sung had been to the young J. Allen Methodist Church, the gang leader arrived at her home on the route to Sayes for a quiet conversation while his bodyguards kept vigil on all sides. Their children grew up together. This curious gathering on the Kung Long combined the resources of the Kung banking empire, the leverage of the Sung family, and the mammoth clout of the Green Gang. They joined forces to make a series of stunning investments and takeovers during the years from 1916 to 1940. The Christian image of the Sung clan with its collegiate veneer was magic with foreigners, and the dark participation of Big Ear Two intimidated any Chinese who might otherwise be stubborn. If the message was not clear, Big Ear Two sent the offending party his usual warning an ornate Chinese coffin. A positive change of heart could be expected momentarily. At the opposite end of the Shanghai social scale, Big Ear Two enjoyed visiting the famous Blue Villa and cruising the other Green Gang brothels in the Blue Chamber District with a young, ill-tempered bravo by the name of Shanghai Shek. We'll talk about the brothel hopping, so to speak, of uh, Big Ear 2 and his protege, Chiang Kai-shek. We'll also talk about the uh, habit, or really the uh, custom, a brutal one, of foot-binding uh, of Chinese women. And I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll pick some excerpts to give people a feeling for the deprivation that prevailed in uh, China under uh, the Kuomintang. It was, and, and prior to that, it was, it was remarkable. And it was the reaction to that deprivation that had much to do with shaping the vector of China after the Kuomintang. Now, one of the main sources of Chiang Kai-shek's power in his Kuomintang regime, and we will talk about its doctrinaire fascism. Again, its doctrinaire anti-communism, along with Chang's conversion to Christianity and that of Tu Yuasheng, were one of the marketing factors that made the Kuomintang so uh, beloved in America, courtesy in no small measure of Henry Luce of, of Time Incorporated, Life Magazine, and Time Magazine. But the fact that Chiang Kai-shek and the Green Gang gained control of the Wampo Military Academy in China, basically gave them effective control of the Chinese army, of the Kuomintang army. Eventually, uh, Tu Yuasheng and Bipak Mark Wang became honorary major generals 
in the Kuomintang army. And uh, Chu Yuesheng was appointed uh, Shanghai chief of anti-communism. But it was the fact that the Green Gang had effective control of the Wampo Military Academy that basically gave the Green Gang and Chiang Kai-shek control of the Chinese army. And the Chinese officer corps, the Kuomintang officer corps, was something unique. They were at the same time military officers and also gangsters of the Green Gang. And their uh, corruption was one of the things that led them to collaborate in many cases with the Chinese. And their doctrinaire communism was one, uh, doctrinaire anti-communism, excuse me, was one of the factors that made them beloved to the U.S. and Henry Luce in particular. Now, of the Green Gang's control of the Mwampo Military Academy and of the consequent control of the Chinese military by the Kuomintang and the Green Gang, we will see, uh, we read as follows. Again, noting that after the 1911 uh, revolution led by Sun Yat-sen, by the way, married to Qingling Sung, who was another of the Sung sisters, a very different one, of a very different character than the other members of the family. But uh, after Sun Yat-sen overthrew the Manchu dynasty, uh, the Kuomintang was split between a left-wing pro-Russian faction and a right-wing Green Gang faction. The latter triumphed and basically drove the other one uh, out of existence. That was one of the factors that made them uh, beloved to the U.S. and to Henry Luz. On May 3rd, 1924, Chiang Kai-shek was confirmed as the Commandant of Wampo Military Academy and as Chief of Staff of the nascent Kuomintang Army. The Russians of the Kuomintang, under orders from Borodin to risk nothing because of Chiang, kept their objections to themselves. By not blocking Chiang's appointment to that coveted position, they committed a fatal blunder. Borodin did not grasp the Chinese commitment to the student-teacher loyalty bond. By permission, Chinese owed absolute loyalty first to the family, second to non-blood relatives through marriage, and third to the student-teacher bond. This was a bond warlords made use of. Chang understood it perfectly. If he was commandant of Wampo Military Academy, Every cadet was his student in the end. Borodin may have thought that Chang could be disposed of later. He could not have been further from the truth. The mistake may have occurred because Borodin had left Canton in March for talks with Russian diplomats in Peking and was not minding the storm. Wampo was on an island in the Pearl River, ten miles south of Canton. In the 1870s, a Manchu fort and naval training school had been built there, and the old wooden buildings provided barracks for Chang's cadets. Originally, the Kuomintang planned to recruit students openly in Kuangtung province, but the recruiters were jailed or murdered by opposing militarists. Instead, a clandestine search was conducted throughout all of China, and Sun Yat-sen was surprised to have 3,000 qualified applicants of whom only 500 could be admitted in the first class. Chinese military schools ordinarily faced a high rate of illiteracy among students. At Wampo, 
all the first-year students, surprisingly, were graduates of middle school and were highly liberated. What Dr. Sun Yat-sen and Borodin did not know, and apparently never suspected, was that a very large number of these candidates came from the ranks of the Green Gang. The opportunity to stack the deck at Wampo was not to be missed. The actual recruiting was carried out by Chen Kuo Fu, a nephew of the dead hero Chen Chi Mei, who had been a major figure in the Green Gang. Since Chen Chi Mei's assassination, his two nephews had taken his place in the gang's hierarchy and had been, quote, adopted, unquote, by Chiang Kai-shek. In all, Chen Kuo Fu was credited with recruiting a total of 7,000 cadets for Wampo drawn directly from the ranks of the Green Gang or indirectly through family membership or or dependency. He accomplished this almost without leaving the French concession, obviously, because he did not have to. These cadets formed the backbone of Chang's personal officer staff. Not even the Chinese Communist Party at that time was so well organized and so well positioned to influence the course of events. Indeed. And we're going to uh, go through an article that we read into the record in For the Record 1095. I probably won't have time to read this entire article. We will uh, recap this and reread it in our next installment. Uh, this was offered by Douglas Valentine. It really is not an article. It is an excerpt from Douglas Valentine's book, The CIA as Organized. Crime, published in softcover by the Clarity Press and copyright 2017 by Douglas Valentine. Uh, Douglas Valentine, known for, among other books, uh, a, arguably the best book about the Phoenix program and a landmark uh, pair of books uh, about the American drug trade. One is called The Strength of the Pack and the other, The Strength of the Wolf, uh, talking about the DEA and Harry Anslinger and uh, the institutionalization and control of the drug trade in America. Uh, Douglas Valentine is a giant uh, in uh, this field and has uh, been just mostly due to the lack of time uh, underrepresented in the archives. But again, Douglas Valentine, as in Valentine's Day, is a true publishing and intellectual giant. And we're going to excerpt his book, The CIA as Organized, Crime will have to come back to this because I doubt that we will have time to uh, read this entire excerpt. This is an overview of the role of Chiang Kai-shek, the role of the dope trade with Chiang Kai-shek and his relationship with the U.S. And Chiang Kai-shek and his dope-dealing Kuomintang were the main source of narcotics for the U.S. market. In the 1920s, the U.S., threw its weight behind Chiang Kai-shek, whose Kuomintang party was fighting the communists and several other warlords for control of China. The U.S. was competing with the other colonial nations for control of China, which had a cheap labor force and represented billions in profits for U.S. corporations and investors. The problem was that the Kuomintang supported itself through the opium trade. It's well documented in the diplomatic cables between the U.S. government and its representatives in China. Historians 
Kimber KIMBER and Walker said the Commissioner of the Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger, quote, clearly knew about the ties between Chang and opium dealers, unquote. Anslinger, that was Harry Anslinger, head of the uh, Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs Bureau, Anslinger knew that Shanghai was, quote, the prime producer and exporter to the illicit world drug markets, unquote, to a syndicate controlled by Du Yue Sheng, a crime lord who facilitated Chang's bloody ascent to power in 1927. As early as 1932, Anslinger knew that Chang's finance minister was Du's protector, that was ultimately H.H. Kung, and the aforementioned P.V. Sung. He'd had evidence since 1929 that American Tongs were receiving Kuomintang narcotics and distributing it to the mafia. Middlemen worked with opium merchants, gangsters like Du, Japanese occupation forces in Manchuria, and Dr. Lansing Ling, quote, who supplied narcotics to Chinese officials traveling abroad, unquote. In 1938, Chiang Kai-shek appointed Dr. Ling head of his narcotic control department. In October of 1934, the Treasury attaché in Shanghai, quote, submitted reports implicating Chiang Kai-shek in the heroin trade to North America, unquote. In 1935, the attaché reported that the superintendent of maritime customs in Shanghai was, quote, acting as agent for Chiang Kai-shek in arranging for the preparation and shipment of the stuff to the United States, unquote. These reports reached Anslinger's desk, so he knew which Kuomintang officials and trade missions were delivering dope to American tongs and which American mafia drug rings were buying it. He knew the tongs were kicking back a percentage of the profits to finance Chang's regime. After Japanese forces invaded Shanghai in August of 1937, Anslinger was even less willing to deal honestly with the situation. By then, Du Yuasheng was sitting on Shanghai's municipal board with William J. Keswick. Du found sanctuary in Hong Kong, where he was welcomed by a cabal of free-trading British colonialists whose shipping and banking companies earned huge revenues by allowing Du to push his drugs on the hapless Chinese. The revenues were truly immense. According to Colonel Joseph Stilwell, later General Joseph Stilwell, the U.S. military attaché in China in 1935, there were, quote, 8 million Chinese heroin and morphine addicts and another 72 million Chinese opium addicts, unquote. By the way, uh, General Stilwell, uh, Colonel Stilwell became General Stilwell, the military advisor to Chiang Kai-shek, and ultimately was replaced because he couldn't stand Chiang Kai-shek. Sterling Seagrave's father, Gordon Seagrave, was General Stilwell's chief surgeon. And wrapping up, Anslinger tried to minimize the problem by lying and saying that Americans were not affected. But the final decisions were made by his bosses in Washington, and from their national security perspective, the profits enabled the Kuomintang to purchase $31 million worth of fighter planes from arms dealer William Pauley to fight the communists, and that trumpeted, that trumped any moral dilemma about trading with the Japanese or getting Americans addicted. 
Um, and it also wraps up this program because we are out of time. We'll continue with this in our next broadcast. This concludes for the record program number 1197, uh, the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, part four. This is being recorded on August 9th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.